In his classic work, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis imagines an exchange of ideas between two demons. Letter number seven begins with the question about whether one of them should stay concealed or reveal his existence. On one hand, opening human eyes to evil spirits promotes the occult and other means of spiritual oppression. On the other hand, not believing in the supernatural adds fuel to materialism and skepticism. The superior demon advises that the best policy is to stay hidden. He then outlines the future long-term goal to ruin humanity, quote, I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is in effect a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains close to the belief in the enemy, that's Christ. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces, while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. End quote. Lewis wrote this about 80 years ago. Now it's as if his predictions are coming true, at least in the Western civilization. We appreciate the insight of philosophers like him, but even better, much better in fact, God himself has directly revealed in his word the devil and his schemes. The Bible doesn't shy away from talks of demonic activity in the world. Our Father, through the spirit of truth, exposes the father of lies and the spirit of error. And so no matter how much Satan tries to hide himself, he'll be uncovered and his plans laid bare. 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. 2 Corinthians 11.3 warns us that the crafty serpent wants to corrupt our minds from the simplicity that's in Christ. We know how the deceiver's plan will end. We find in Revelation 20 verse 10 that he'll end up in the lake of fire, tormented day and night forever. All that plotting and scheming come to nothing. Even his best attempts to destroy Jesus, the devil could not intend apart from the superintending of God. We read in Acts 4.28, what the Lord's hand and purpose determined before to be done has been done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But let's rewind a bit and turn back the pages and we arrive at a turning point in the gospel in today's passage. And here we observe the beginnings of devil strategy to destroy Jesus, and we should pay attention to the way our enemy operates. After all, if we're going to stand against his wiles, we must not be ignorant of his devices. So let's read Luke 22, 1 to 6. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, you'll find the passage in page 739. Luke 22, 1 to 6.
Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Chapter 22 begins a new section of Luke called the Passion Narrative. There's a key time marker, a mention of the Passover, the first major event in the Jewish calendar. Depending on the context, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread can be treated separately, or as seen here, there are overlaps and interchange between them in vocabulary. Matthew and Mark also start their versions of the Passion Narrative with the same marker in chapters 26 and 14, respectively. And both a little bit later in those chapters narrate the agreement to betray Jesus. Luke tells the story a bit differently than Matthew and Mark. First, he puts that betrayal agreement at the very beginning of the section, as you see here. In addition, Luke reveals what strange and wicked force united the religious leaders in Judas. Look at verse 3. This is the hinge verse. Satan's the glue guy that makes them work as a team. The verse 3 is what makes Luke's retelling of the passion narrative so unique. To really appreciate what Luke's doing here, let's imagine for a second that verse 3 isn't there. Put your finger over that verse or just skip over it while I read. Uh, Let me do that for you. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might skip us, they might kill him, for they feared the people. Skip verse 3, go to verse 4. He, Judas, went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, agreed to give him money, so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. You see how, without verse 3, Luke would not diverge much from Matthew and Mark before him. But verse 3 is there. And it gives us a new perspective of the same events. Spiritually speaking, Satan's in the fray, the antagonist under his sway. Strategically speaking, the devil fuses together the enemies and the traitor like the two jaws of a bear trap. Structurally speaking, Consider the three movements in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 22. First, in verses 1 to 2, we see the chief priests and the scribes just going in circles, not getting anywhere. In verse 3, we see what's needed to move them out of their rut. Satan needed to move in to Judas. And then in verses 4 to 6, we have two parts moving toward each other like the attraction of magnets as the devil brings the two sides to the bargaining table. Based on these three parts, I'm going to suggest three warnings. First, look beyond titles to evaluate character. That's verses 1 to 2. Look beyond titles to evaluate character. 
Second, beware of Satan's attacks on close relationships. Beware of Satan's attacks on close relationships. That's verse 3. Thirdly, don't rely on mere activity and proximity to holiness. That's verses 4 to 6. Don't rely on mere activity and proximity to holiness. 4 to 6. First, look beyond titles to evaluate character. Just to be clear, titles are not bad in themselves. I'm humbled and honored to be called pastor here. My life is so much more meaningful since I've become husband and father. But you would not and should not conclude that I'm a godly pastor, I'm a good husband, and a caring father just because I hold those titles. No, you've got to move look beyond them to evaluate my character. In the same way, Jesus warned how we must look beyond the titles of chief priests and scribes to evaluate character. Let's start with the scribes. They're dressed to impress with their long, flowy robes. No doubt they drew the attention of crowds at the marketplaces. They took the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at the feasts. But Jesus called them out in chapter 20 because they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. The verdict of our Lord is that these will receive greater condemnation. Jesus also called out the chief priests. Chief priests worked under the high priest as captains, directors, overseers, and treasurers in all matters related to the temple. As pilgrims from all over made the trip to Jerusalem at Passover, many would stand in awe of their outward appearance, in awe of their work in the backdrop of the glorious temple. But our Lord was not impressed. In chapter 19, verses 45 to 46, he drove out the business conducted there. He accused them of turning the house of prayer into a den of thieves, The religious leaders didn't take these criticisms well. At the end of chapter 19, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, we read that they sought to destroy him, but were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Their frustration continues in the next chapter. In chapter 20, verse 19, as Jesus spoke against them, at that very hour they sought to lay hands on him, but again, they feared the people. They could not catch him in his words. They could not find a slip-up to frame him. And now in today's passage, once again, they're trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus without causing an uproar. As far as they can tell, if they're going to capture him, it would have to be by stealth. And after the feast, the murderous designs prove that underneath those titles of scribe and chief priest are sin, hypocrisy, and fear of man. Now for some applications of this. How can we avoid such bad examples? Well, thankfully, God's word gives us clear guidelines. That way, we don't have to hold titles in name only. The deacons, Bob and Bernardo, the elders, Steve, Stephen, and I, 
we've been given a list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and other places too. But in 1 Timothy 3, we said, don't be addicted to wine. Don't be greedy for money. Have our homes in order. People ruling over the household of faith. Speaking of which, even if you're not a church officer, you have titles at home, such as parent and child. You have titles at work as employee or manager. Ephesians 5 to 6, give us guidance so that these titles are not in name only, but pleasing to the Lord. Integrity in leadership positions, so important. Satan would love to attack you in order to destroy you and those closest to you. And that leads to the second warning in today's passage. Beware of Satan's attacks on close relationships. Now, have you ever made a dumb mistake or made a poor choice and someone asked you, what possessed you to do that? Or maybe you think back to those moments and say, I don't know what got into me. Well, from Luke 22, verse 3, we know what possessed Judas Iscariot to do what he did. We do know what or who got into him. Satan enters Judas and re-enters the scene. What is our adversary up to? Let's review Satan's activities from the early chapters of Luke. Like Matthew and Mark, Luke narrates that he tempted Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism. Interestingly, Luke adds this note towards the end of that ordeal in chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan waited for some time. Meanwhile, through many chapters of Luke, Jesus exerts himself and even grants authority to his followers. The enemy and his demonic forces are reeling. Of course, the devil's doing all that he can behind the scenes, hindering the preaching of God's word. But Satan's not openly asserting himself to stop Christ as he did at the temptation. He's waiting for that opportune time. Years later, as he sees an opportunity, he'll seize that opportunity. And it won't be another one-on-one duel with Jesus as it was back in chapter 4. It's a more elaborate plan to destroy Jesus. It starts with Satan hijacking one of the 12 disciples. His disguise allows him to infiltrate the ranks, work as a spy, and target Jesus from within close quarters. Next, the devil perverts what is good. He turns loyalty into betrayal, community into rivalry, harmony into dissonance. Remember our first song together today, For the Beauty of the Earth. One of the verses we sang, For the joy of human love, brother, sister, parent, child, friends on earth and friends above, all gentle thoughts and mild. Well, the devil wants to sever those close ties and family and friendships. Turn what is beautiful into ugly. And here Satan targets that close relationship between the disciple and the teacher. The servant with his master. 
For years, Judas has been among those men who are with Jesus. He's aware of his ins and outs, when and where he goes out and comes in. He knew when and where Jesus would be alone in the vicinity of Jerusalem in the absence of the multitude. We learn later in chapter 22, verse 39, 40, that it will be during his customary evening prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane on Mount Olives. Jesus led the corrupt authorities to that exact location to arrest Jesus. So that's how the trap was set and eventually sprung. There will be a betrayal of David's son, just as there once was a betrayal of David himself. Lord willing, we'll get to the story of Absalom and Ahithophel and David in 2 Samuel sometime later this year. We got a preview of that story from David's reflections in Psalm 41 today. And I also encourage you to read Psalm 55. Suffice it to say now, like David, Jesus knows well the sting of betrayal. So again, beware of Satan's attacks on close relationships. Now, before moving on to some applications, we should talk about John 13, verse 27. It says there that it was the night before the crucifixion when the devil entered Judas. If that's the case, why does it say in Luke 22, verse 3, that the devil entered Judas earlier that week? Let me read John 13, 27 for you, but I'll begin from verse 21 and end at 30. And that'll give us a better view of the context. So again, it's John 13, 21 to 30. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. No one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things which need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received a piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So John clearly states that Judas took from Jesus the bread that was, that was dipped. That's when Satan entered him. So how do we reconcile this with Luke 22, verse 3? My take is that the devil didn't possess Judas constantly and continually, I don't think Satan stayed inside Judas after Luke 22, verse 3. He must have exited, and then he must have re-entered. So on two separate occasions, the devil pushed Judas over the edge. First, two days before Passover, Satan got into Judas to unite him with the religious leaders. Secondly, on the night before the crucifixion, he got into Judas to escort the mob to Gethsemane. Okay, so that's enough about Satan entering Judas. Let's turn now to some applications on how we can beware of Satan's attacks on close relationships. 
There's much we can discuss, but I want to focus on two contexts, our family and our church. First, family. We read in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, that the evil one likes to destroy marriages. When couples spend too much time apart, and when there's no intimacy and no self-control, the tempter gets to work. Be sure those extended times away from each other are consensual and occupied with seeking God through prayer and fasting, guarding yourselves from temptations. Satan also likes to take aim at brothers and sisters. We know from early in the Bible how he devised siblings. He became a murderer from the beginning as he pitted Cain against his own brother Abel. The wicked one also attacks our church families. In Matthew, we learn that he plants tares among the wheat. That means that in the church age, he hinders our kingdom work using his minions. In Acts, he filled the heart of a churchgoer named Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit in the matter of financial giving. In 2 Corinthians, the devil takes advantage of our extreme harshness and our lack of forgiveness. That's in chapter 2, 5 to 11. In 1 Thessalonians, he hindered Paul so that he could not be in fellowship with the fledgling church. Chapter 2, verse 18. To this day, the devil's messing with churches. Maybe he'll even target our own congregation. But we need to take heed the word of the Lord in 1 Peter 5, 8 to 11. Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we strive to be vigilant, we learn from God how to resist the roaring lion. That means we must learn from today's passage from the tragedy of Judas. And that leads to the third warning focused on Judas. Don't rely on mere activity and proximity to holiness. Here's a bit on Judas Iscariot's background. All four gospel writers introduce him in the first half of their narratives, and all four tell us right away that he would someday betray Jesus. But then there's no more mention of him individually until the Passion Week. So we don't have much here concerning his background. Judas was a common name in those days. So there had to be some way to distinguish him from others. Iscariot was appropriate. It was a surname in the archaic sense, telling us the location of his hometown. It's a compound word. Ish means man. And Kariot is a city in the south of Judea. That all adds up to Judas, the man of Kariot. 
We don't know what Judas did for a living. Perhaps he had some administrative skills to be able to serve as a treasurer. With scant information, it makes it harder to figure out the exact motive behind his crime. Why did he ultimately betray the Son of God to become the son of perdition? To answer this question, we must piece together a few puzzle pieces. Theologically speaking, it was predetermined. Somebody had to be the betrayer, and the scriptures were fulfilled through this role. It's also, it's also true the devil made him do it, but the evil one worked with something already festering in Judas's heart. So Judas cannot be absolved of his guilt and personal responsibility. He fell by his own transgressions to go to his own place of damnation, as Acts one twenty five says. But can we be more specific about his motives? John the Apostle later reveals that Judas was a thief, and he used to purloin from the money box of Jesus and the twelve. It's John twelve. No doubt, his love of money was at the root of its root of his evil as he strayed from faith. But there's probably more to it. It's not like Judas made a killing by getting Jesus killed. 30 pieces of silver isn't exactly a fortune. In search of other motives, something that Judas was disillusioned. Jesus wasn't the Messiah that he expected him to be. So we don't have all the answers. We have all that we need to know in the scriptures. In today's passage, we find Judas was energized by Satan, but he himself chose to go his own way and confer with the chief priests and the captains. He took the money, he made a promise, and he sought opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of the multitude. This is nothing less than a terrible tragedy. Once Judas was a preacher of the kingdom, having power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. He did many wonders in Christ's name. But in the end, he's shut out of heaven. The gospel which he heard and even preached himself did not profit him. Because our message was not mixed with personal, genuine faith. He had knowledge without a true relationship. Thomas Watson puts it well, quote, Knowledge alone is like a winter sun, which has no heat or influence. It does not warm the affections or purify the conscience. Judas was a great luminary. He knew God's will but he was a traitor. In some sense, Judas is the spiritual descendant of Balaam. He's also the prototype of the apostates in Hebrews 6. Like them, Judas was enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift. He was a partaker of the Holy Spirit. He tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, but he fell away at last bearing thorns and briars. He was cursed, and now he burns. 
concerning him, there are things that accompany damnation, not salvation. Let Judas be a warning for all of us. Don't rely on mere activity and proximity to holiness. Now I'm going to speak to someone who might be listening to the sermon via recording, to someone who may not be a Christian. And I want to encourage those who are engaged in spiritual activity, attending church or, again, listening to the sermon, or maybe you have a Christian friend or attend a local church, but we must not confuse activity and proximity to holiness as holiness itself. That's why it's so important that you understand the bad news of our sin and the good news of Jesus. First, we must realize that we are sinners under the control of Satan. Even if the devil does not possess any of us, all sinners, apart from the grace of God, walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Left to ourselves, we are enemies of Christ. Like the religious leaders, we are hypocrites, greedy, jealous. We betray and deceive our family and friends. We murdered with angry hate of our hearts. We coveted what belongs to others and committed idolatry. Apart from God's grace, we conduct ourselves in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind. We are by nature children of wrath. But here's the good news. The one and only solution to our sin problem is in the gospel. God's son lived among us perfectly and flawlessly, befriending those who are undeserving of him. Thankfully, he didn't wait until we were good enough, as Romans 5, 8 to 10 reminds us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us in demonstration of God's love toward us. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. This happened on the cross as Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He rose again from the dead on the third day and ascended to heaven. Someday he will return to judge all mankind. Before that day or before our time on earth ends, we must repent from our sins and trust in Christ. Admit that you've offended the holy God. Turn away from self-righteousness and self-centered living. Place your hope of heaven in the person and the finished work of Christ. Eternal life is yours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as we do, claim these promises, even now at this moment, we can enjoy the blessings of a restored relationship with God. Gratefully worship him for the gift that he gives. So let's do that now as we sing to our Lord Christ Jesus. Your blood has washed away my sin. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. One sure enemy, now seated at your table, 
Jesus, thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we see these true accounts of the Bible and see the depths of depravity. And Lord, we can react in many ways. We pray that that reaction would not be that somehow we're so much better than the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas, that we are impervious to the attacks of Satan. We know how this world can be so fallen and so corrupt. And the greatest gift to humankind was made. It was cast out. It was rejected. Your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've saved us. You've transformed us to see the truth. You've regenerated us through your spirit. And Lord, we pray that we would stand and resist the devil. Help us to battle hypocrisy. Help us to battle disunity. May we be loyal and faithful followers of you each and every day. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.